This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Dr. Cindy Solonek, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, really nice to meet you too, Cindy. Um, so Cindy is, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Cindy will correct me. Cindy Solonek is a Nigana woman from the West Kimberley. I was trying to get that pronunciation correct. She graduated with a PhD in history from UWA in 2016. And her book, Debessa, is a rewriting of her thesis that explores a social history in the West Kimberley based on the way her parents and extended family lived during the mid-1900s. University sessional staff member, Cindy, lectures and tutors in addressing Aboriginal themes. She is a member of the History Council of Western Australia and she plays violin with Encore, a seniors all-string orchestra. You're a bit of an all-rounder, right, though, Cindy? Oh. Gammon one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gammon one. I just learnt that word too. <laughs> there we go. Um, I think you're pretty special. Anyway, so congratulations on the book. Firstly, I want to know, just tell us what the book is about and we'll kind of go back and then talk about you and because it's kind of biographical in a way, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so the book, um, I, I was looking at a social history in the West Kimberley based on the way my parents lived on this small station. But I, I did this as my PhD thesis and one of my supervisors said, well, we need to know who your parents are. Can you give some context to who they are? So you need to go back as far as you can. So with so, so I did. I, I had a look at um, my great-grandparents, which really with Aboriginal people, it's as far as you can go, certainly with my age group. You know, I'm in my 60s because it's not that long since Europeans came here and took over. So I was able to go back as far as I guess. So really I did my great-grandparents on my maternal side and I was able to look at them and then my grandparents and then where mum came from. Then on dad's side, and he came from Galicia in Spain, I just I put a little bit about his parents, so my grandparents, who I never knew from Spain. So the first actually couple of chapters looks at my parents um, before they even, even met and quite a bit at my mum's family, um, her sisters. She had seven siblings. So I look at them and where they went after having been born on and grown up at Beagle Bay Mission, north of Broome. Um, and I eventually come to my parents' meeting <laughs> on a sheep station in the Kimberley and then their marriage and then um, finding their own small lease and so how they developed that station. And so this started <clears throat> off as a thesis. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't know I was writing a book. Mm. Yeah. And so you were writing their story, really, and how you came to be. Yeah. So in writing that, tell me a little bit about your upbringing, because I want to then just reflect on the past. But talk to me about you growing up. So you grew up in the Kimberley. 
Yes, I was born in Derby in the West Kimberley um, and I grew up in the West Kimberley, but I was sent away to boarding school at a very early age. Why? So was, because my parents had this small lease and it was the best way they could get us kids educated. So um, at, at one point, the four of us, me and my three siblings, were away at boarding school, but I'm the one who spent the most time away. So at the age of seven, I did a little bit of schooling in Derby, but then they chucked me off to boarding school <laughs> with my sister and had a couple of cousins there. And what and boarding I, school did you go to? I went to Stella Maris College in Geraldton. Right. On the West Coast. Yeah, Geraldton's about, I don't know, 500 k's north of Perth. Yeah, yeah I know what that is. And that's the Catholic Stella Maris, isn't it? Yes, it was run by the Presentation Sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was set down there for schooling. Um, it was an all-girls boarding school. And Cindy, did you say you were age seven? I was seven, yes. Yeah. That, so t- do you remember that feeling of leaving your family at that age? Oh, I was quite excited about it. I mean, my sister was already there. My cousins were there. <laughs> and they were going off on this plane, a good old DC3, off to Geraldton. And, um, yeah, I was quite excited. But then, yeah, the homesickness did, did settle in after a while once the reality of boarding school set in, I suppose. But I was very young, so I accepted also that's just the way it was. You know, that's where my school was and... And how often did you get home? In those days, it was three school terms a year. These days, it's four. So my parents got to take us home most school holidays. I think there was only one or maybe a couple of times in those nine years I was away, I remember not going home. And once was something to do with the Commonwealth Games, I think, were in Perth and the uh, the holidays were sort of split up a bit, so it wasn't a full two weeks. And another time was uh, because I learnt the violin at school, I went to a music camp down here in Perth. But I'd rather have gone home, but I was sent down here. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I've ever spoken to anybody that's been to boarding school at a such a young age. I mean, you think, when I think about the way people raise their children now, you know, and all the before school classes and after school classes, and, you know, you would have heard, Cindy, that it's, you know, we call them uh, helicopter parents, if you like. Yes. Um, It's such a contrast to you going to boarding school at seven because that would have been, what, year two or year three. So who raises you when you're at boarding school? I mean, your parents aren't raising you, are they? No, the nuns did. So we had a nun by the name of Sister Veronica who looked after. I was with the little ones, I think. There weren't that many of us. I'm trying to think how many there were. I can't remember if it was 12 or maybe 20 in this dormitory and upstairs were the big girls and Sister Dolores where my sister and my two cousins were and another girl from Derby was there as well. So she looked after those girls. But, wow, that boarding, those boarding school days, that's a book on its own. <laughs> Isn't it just? <laughs> yeah, how we- was it a good experience, a happy experience? Look, I knew no differently, yeah. I, I think it was good, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're nice old girls, you know. I mean, I call them old now. Some of them are still alive, just. <laughs> um, no, they did the best under, you know, whatever their calling in life was and what they were supposed to do. They just did it. Yeah. I understand all this much better now, of course. Of course. So yeah. you went from primary school to high school. It was at the same boarding school? Yes, yes, yes. Right. And tell me about your education because you, you're quite academic. I only ever went to year... Um, 10. Uh, these days kids go to year 12. But in 1969, around that era, the junior certificate really was quite a significant achievement anyway. It was pass or fail, you know. 
So, um, oh, yeah, we went into classrooms every day. We did the course subjects. Um, some of us had extracurricular like I did. I was told to learn the violin and I was told to do the artist's speech and I suspect the artist's speech was because I was probably speaking Aboriginal English and Creole quite fluently. <laughs> Where so did like, you learn that? Just on the station with the people we were with. We all spoke the same way, you know. So these are languages to be corrected, weren't they? So, you know, English was the language. I mean, this was going to be a white, go-ahead imperial country that spoke English. So, um, yeah, I learnt the art of speech. I just said with normal school, I suppose. You learn maths and reading and writing. And, so um, when you finished, you came back to the property? So in 1969 was when I finished and that was the year my parents actually left the station. Oh, right. So I came back to Derby. They had moved to Derby by then. So Into um, a house. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you read the book, that's all explained in there, uh, how they had to leave the station. So it was pretty traumatic time for them. I remember going back to Derby and no one even met me at the airport. That's the state that they were in. And I caught the bus into town and they had this uh, housing commission home, a duplex in Derby. And, yeah, they were pretty sad. Um, I didn't quite understand that properly either. All I was upset about is that no one met me at the airport. But I um, then, yeah, got myself a job at the post office and I became a phonogram operator. Do you know what that is? Uh, I think it's the telephone. Telegram. The switchboard. Yeah. The telephone switchboard? It's the telegrams. <clears throat> so you're oh. in all these seats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we, we used to take um, telegrams over the phone. Oh, wow. They yeah. had a typewriter in front of you, an old clunky thing, and people would give you their um, telegrams and read it out to you over the phone. And I used to take those telegrams from people around town. I mean, the ones who were pretty flash, you know, and it was the old phone the operator and say, number please, on that say, can I have tellies? And they'd plug it through to me and I would take the telegram and give it to the telegraphist who would send it off. But I also took telegrams from the surrounding small town post offices like Fitzroy Crossing, Cockatoo Island and Coolan Island, which were BHP mining islands off in the Ampey Sound off Derby. Yeah, so that's what a phonogram operator did. They took telegrams over the phone. Ah, right. Now, you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of there must have been so many stories that come from people's communication through telegrams that you were privy to in a way. Yes. Were you a bit of a storyteller then? Did you read some of these and make up some story in your own head? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you didn't. I, I didn't know I was a storyteller, honestly, Cheryl. You didn't um, know? No, no. I mean, I've doubled a little bit in stories Um that people have told me, family and, and that sort of thing. But I never really, the most I ever did was writing was when I started at university and um, had to write assignments. Okay. Yeah. So I suppose I do have a little bit of creative flair. Mm. So you're, you're working there at the post office. Yeah. And at what point did you, so how long did you work for before you went back to university? Well, it wasn't really going back to university. I didn't go to university until I was 36. Oh, right, okay, of course. Yeah, yeah, quite, yeah. yeah very mature aged, and that was just by luck. If you um, know a little bit on Australian history, in the early 1970s, it was Gough Whitlam who introduced lots of great things. He was only there for about three years. I think that's why he, they kicked him out. He was there doing too many good things for women, for minority groups, for Aboriginal people. So Aboriginal people started to go to university after Whitlam had been in 
and that's where I'm, I noticed other people going to university. I was always a bit scared to do it. And it wasn't until 1988 we were living in Marble Bar and um, somebody came from Edith Cowan University, came around to see one of their external students who was working at the school, an Aboriginal woman there, who was an Aboriginal education worker. And I said to him, can I have a go at going to uni? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're doing testing. So um, they brought me and a couple of other people from Marble Bar down to Perth and we did a test and I passed the test. And they said, yeah, you can come to uni. So what they actually did was um, they offered us an associate degree and it was a block release. So it meant that for one week, three times a semester, they would fly us to Perth to have on-campus lectures and then the rest of the time we were back home in our communities and mine was Marble Bar. Then we moved to Tom Price um, and I did all my assignments at home. So it was, you were basically doing it by correspondence. So that was how I got into uni. And what were you studying? I studied um, Aboriginal Studies and Human Service Management. That was about all that was being offered to Aboriginal people in those days. Mm. These days, wow. Mm. <laughs> so what did you do with your time right up to that age? So, I mean, I got married quite young. So working in the post office in Derby, um, I met this handsome, tall telephone technician who then became my husband. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of kids in Derby. Uh, we were there for about five years and we moved around with his job. So we left Derby. We went to Exmouth. Do you know where Exmouth is? No, yeah. I don't. No? Okay. Exmouth um, is probably the most western point in Australia. Uh, north of Carnarvon, sort of off the Pilbara. Yeah. Near the Pilbara, yeah. It, it, at the I've time, been to the Pilbara. A, yeah, okay. Yeah. At the time, Exmouth was an American naval base, uh, so it had Americans and Australian naval personnel there. We were considered as civilians. We lived there for six years during that time. It's, it's no longer an American base that folded a long time ago, but it was so interesting in those times because the Americans had their own cars there. <laughs> So they left hand drive cars and oh, you know, out, out on, yeah. It was, yeah. It was really nice. We were there for about six years. I didn't really. I, I worked for a while for um, offshore exploration, and um, they were um, there was SO from Victoria were based there, and they had helicopter companies like um, Okanagan and uh, Bristow, and there was another one uh, Lloyd's, and they flew their helicopters offshore to the oil rigs that were exploring for whatever oil or whatever. So I worked for them for a couple of years as a radio operator, mainly just to see the crew changes in and out. Um, after that, we moved away and we went to the wheat belt, northern wheat belt out from Geraldton, pretty close to where I'd gone to boarding school, to a little place called Mullawar. We were there for three years. And this is all with my husband's works as a telephone uh, communications technician. You know, we moved around a bit. Then we went to Marble Bar, we went to Tom Price, then we went to Caratha. Then in 1996, we moved to Perth and we've been here ever since. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It makes me think about some of the challenges that you must have had, you know, being a woman and being an Aboriginal person. Did you... Mm -hmm. I feel as though you achieved a lot and when you talk about it, it's just what you did. But were there any barriers at the time? Were you, you know, facing any pushback? Were people thinking that it's unusual that you wanted to go to university, you know, even though you had married and you had children? Talk to me about that. Okay. No, it wasn't wasn't a problem because I was with other Aboriginal people, okay? The program that I entered to go to university was specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. So I was in good company. I was comfortable. Um, there was no problem there. I made some great friends out of that. Um, so for my for the associate diploma that they offered us, I did the two years on a block release. But then I decided, well, somebody said to me once, an associate degree isn't worth anything. You need to do a degree. I said, oh, well, okay. So that was another year. So I applied to do that and they said, yeah, you can, but it's not a part of this program anymore. So you're on your own, basically. So there were, I had to do another year's study. Two of those units that I had to do were not offered externally. They were only offered on campus at Mount Holly campus in Perth. So I um, decided to move to Perth. So I left my husband and the older daughter in Tom Price. She had a traineeship up there. And me and the younger daughter moved to Perth so I could get a university degree. So I moved down here and we did that. It was quite scary. Um, the first unit... I would go into the lecture room, um, which was just an ordinary sort of classroom, and the lecturer scared the living daylights out of me. I actually, and I was very uncomfortable. I had never been with so many people, so many non-Aboriginal people in this one room, except for my friend. She was Aboriginal and she would always say to me, don't look at him because he'll get you, (laughs) you'll ask you questions. (laughs) I was like, well, I don't know the answers. I actually withdrew. Right. I, I was frightened, yeah. And um, But I, I enrolled again in the next semester. What was it the next year? I can't remember. Anyway, I, I enrolled again and I did do it. The next time I enrolled, I had a, a different lecturer and I and it was a female this time and I <laughs> I warmed to her and she was just quite, quite nice. And, um, yeah, I ended up completing my degree down here. Yeah. Mm. Then I went back to Tom Price. It, mm. it seems to me kind of for any person at that time mm. a, a huge achievement. I think so. You know, um, Cheryl, when I came, first came down and was doing that by block release, and we all sat around in this room um, in transportables. The university seemed to have had transportables for Aboriginal programs. We were all, there was not one person in that room who, who had completed year 12. We had all been to year 10, and now here we were all doing our university studies. But that was the era, you know, it was no big deal. So, Do you think um, a lot has changed, Cindy? In the university environment or what do you know? Well, in the education of women and particularly Aboriginal women. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, I think it was more women who were going to study than the men. I think the men were more um, probably working or whatever. Mm. Um, yes, most of the friends I've made have been women. And that's just, I think, Edith Cowan University did have a very high uh, mature aged rate of 
students, and a lot of them were women, you know, and probably women who, whose kids like me, were off at high school or whatever and could um, go to study, whereas men had jobs and were working. So, but, um, yeah, I think men, women are a lot more accepted these days. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It just seems to me that it would have been more challenging, but you, you seem to have breezed through it, which is fantastic. I didn't know any differently. Yeah. I don't come from an academic background. I don't come from a home full of books and readers and, and that sort of thing, you know. I'm, I don't, didn't know I could write. I'm not a good reader. I read maybe three or four books a year um, because I just didn't grow up around that sort of mm. environment, you know. Um, I mean, I do read a book. I really get into it. <laughs> yeah, really absolutely. It. So do I. Um, yeah. So your family heritage is Spanish, English, and Aboriginal, right? But you seem, do you identify with some more than the other? Or talk to me about your heritage and what you identify with. So my father, you know, came from Spain, from Galicia, northwest of Spain, to be a Benedictine monk. He came as a novice, Dean monk here at New Northia, but he never took the vows and he headed north. And he met Aboriginal woman, my mother, um, Katie, his younger woman. Um, they got married. Um, so I don't know a lot about my um, Spanish ancestry. Dad thinks there may have been an Irish connection there somewhere, which wouldn't be surprising because northwest of Spain is Celtic anyway. You know, they have, they play bagpipes and do square dancing and it's not flamingos and bullfighting, you know. That's no. quite different to the rest of Spain. Um, so that wouldn't surprise me if we do have um, Irish heritage there, but we don't know. On mum's side, that was a bit easier in that we knew we were Aboriginal, but her biological grand, uh, grandfather was of English heritage, so he was a white stockman, but her mother's father, her maternal grandfather, was Indian. Well, he came from India at the time. It is now Pakistan. He came from Karachi and he's a Muslim, So that and his name is Qasim, which is all Pakistani, yeah. Yeah, so that's what it is today. But he was Indian. It was India when he came. Um, we embraced um, the Spanish heritage quite a bit. But, you know, as I say in the book, that's what white Australia would want us to do anyway, not so much the Aboriginal. Yeah, but we knew very little about the Indian side. Yeah, but <clears throat> my dad's family, um, you know, some of his nephews followed him out here to Australia and they worked in the Kimberley. A couple of them went back married their wives, they all had these childhood sweethearts, brought them out here. Some of the kids were born in the Kimberley, but um, most of them went back to Spain. So our Spanish um, connections have been quite strong um, at a distance, but it's our Aboriginal heritage that we know best. And is that because it came strongly through your mother? It's because we lived right there on country. Yeah. Because we were right there amongst our mob. Yeah. Um, thought any more of it, you know, it's just the way it was. And um, all our family are Aboriginal, they're in Kimberley and up through the Territory. Um, some of them came to Perth, not too many, it was just one one auntie who came down here and all her kids were born here. But the rest of us, I don't know, we just, it wasn't never questioned or talked about, we just were who we were, you know. Mm. It's really become more, more prominent since native title, since Terra Nullius was dispelled in 1992 then people started to realise that the lands that had been stolen off them, they could actually crown land, they could claim back again. So it's really become, um, you know, people are embracing Aboriginality a lot more now than, than in the past in a, in, a, in a different sort of way. 
So, so as you say, post um, native title. Is that your little dog in the background? That is Donna. She's <laughs> downstairs, but my husband has a little home business and she <laughs> every time somebody comes, she thinks they come to see her. She yeah. lets us all know visit Yeah, her. that's fine. I love the name Donna for a dog. That's beautiful. Do you know one of the things I'm going to say, I've been over to Western Australia only how, maybe two or three times actually, and what struck me was the diversity. It is quite a culturally diverse place, isn't it? Yeah, I would have thought, where are you? I'm in Sydney. The whole of Australia is. I didn't expect it as much to be in Western Australia. I don't know why. I just, and I didn't expect the lineage to be that long. And I just met all these wonderful people from, mm. you know, so many diverse backgrounds. And for some reason, it came as a surprise to me. And the more I read about Aboriginal culture and, and Aboriginal people's stories like yourself, mm. I see how mixed it is. You know, there's so much there and it goes way back, doesn't it? Yep. You know, in Perth, the um, Wajak Noongar people here yeah. are very good at resurrecting and really promoting their own culture, uh, really embracing the language. You know, you go into the centre of Perth there, even the city of Perth is embracing Noongar culture in, in a beautiful way. You know, they named, yeah. they have a statue of Jagan who was a warrior named the Centre Square in Perth after Yagan. There's a big bridge that goes over to the new football stadium that's called Madagara, which is, you know, they're embracing Noongar names and, and the students I teach are getting to know a lot of Noongar words. Um, it is really well done in this city. And, and yeah, in, yeah. Uh, I agree with that. I really I really noticed that. I, You know, it was something that stood out to me. Now, talking about the book, did you mean to write it? No. I suppose at the back of my you know, head. I somewhere. asked you that because I got a sense that it probably came about accidentally. Yeah, yeah. I suppose at the back of my head, I mean, we'd always, I, I sort of always thought, well, there's Dad's diaries there. Let's hope somebody can do something with them, you know. And I'm pretty sure my brother approached a radio announcer or someone once, you know, my dad's got these diaries. I need to do something with them. But in the end, I, I realised I'm the one who needed to do it because I had done the history studies and if other people were dissecting, you know, diving into his diaries, they're not going to understand what he's talking about. They don't know where he was. They don't know this country. They don't know our family. Um, so really it was probably better if one of us kids did it and I was probably the best placed. But I hadn't really seriously got into it until I had finished my PhD and the examiner's reports, two, there were three examiners, two examiners and one in particular said quite clearly and strongly that this is a social history that is not written about from the West Kimberley and this, you need to write this and, and get it into a book. And, and one of them even gave me the name of a couple of places that I could contact to have it published through and to get the support. You know, I needed the support to write a book. I had no idea how to go about this. As I said earlier, I didn't come from this background. So he did say Magabala books, which I was quite aware of because it comes from right in my country, basically. Um, so it, it was funny, Cheryl, on the night of the graduation, my husband and sister were sitting right up near the front and um, on the program it had Jacinta Solonek. My name is actually Jacinta. I get Cindy. And then it says um, this the name and it had Nyingana there and it had Frank and Katie Rodriguez. And the next thing my sister and husband heard the people behind them saying, we know Frank and Katie. 
And they looked around and said, hey, who are you? And they said, well, who are you, sort of thing. And how it turns out, it was Rachel Binsella. Oh, there's I know. There's I'm a scene. to her. Yeah, she's a CEO of Mugabella Books and her mum, Honor. And we knew Honor years ago. So I always tell Rachel I knew her before she was born. So we graduated, I graduated the same night as um, Rachel's nephew, I think it was. But anyway, we got talking and so the next day she came and saw me and really that's where the book started from the examiners saying, you need to get this out there, one, and two, Rachel saying, yes, we need these stories, we need Aboriginal stories and it's Kimberley story and, and you can do this as, um, you know, creative non-fiction so uh, it sort of went from there. Cindy, yeah. congratulations. <laughs> Honestly, um, a remarkable book, a great story, beautifully told. Congratulations. And it's just been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Oh, thank you for your time. I, I hope you enjoyed it, Ryan. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.